All right. Good morning. Welcome uh, again. And uh, glad you're able to be here. Uh, we are in week uh, 12, believe it or not, of Hebrews, of Jesus is Greater. It's interesting, just in the way here, um, I was talking with Paul um, and saying, you know, in, in, in 20, 30 years, if I ever do preach through Hebrews again, I might pump the brakes a little bit more than we've been doing this go around. There's just a lot. Um, and so that's kind of this passage today. There's just, there's just a lot there. Uh, and so I'm not trying to sound really smart because I'm not. Um, that's why I want to slow down just for my own sake. It's just a lot that we're trying to get through. Uh, and so if, if you're checking out Christianity, you're kicking the tires of Christianity, you're checking out Hope Community Church, I think it's a great, great book to, to go through. I'm glad that we've been able to, to, to be here now 12 weeks. Um, and yet there's going to be a big, a big shift that the author is going to do uh, this week. And, and so that's what we're going to be looking at in Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 13. So if you have an app or if you want to follow along, you can't. I'll have the, all the readings, uh, all the passages up on the screen. But if you want to follow along, you're, you're more than welcome to. Uh, does anyone here have a favorite um, cover song? You know what I mean? And, and if you're watching online, feel free to type in the comments if you're on Facebook. But um, does anyone have like a, like a, this is the cover. So think of like, is it, is it wolves, the wolves who do the cranberry song? Is that zombie, right? Is it, is that who does that? Nobody know what I'm talking about? Somebody remade the zombies? Yeah, okay, the wolves. Nobody's ever heard of the wolves, right? Nobody, but, but covering a popular song, right? And it's good, it's good, but it's not as good as the original, um, and so that's, that's kind of the thing. Are there any songs you would say, this, this song I think was, is better than the original? Anybody? Johnny Cash. What did he cover? Johnny Cash covered Nine Inch Nails? Oh, oh, I didn't know that. All right, well, great. Okay, but now, would, would, would Johnny Cash's cover have meant anything if the Nine Inch Nails had never been written in the first place? See what I'm saying? So, so the, the duplicate can be good. The copy can be good. Uh, I, I love Disturbs, uh, uh, The Sound of Silence, right? But, but it's got nothing without Simon and Garfunkel, right? I mean, if you didn't have anything to compare it to, it wouldn't be that, that good, right? Um, and so I was even thinking, uh, just with our sermon this morning, uh, simply would be the, the, the sermon, the title of the sermon is The Day Religion Died, and I have been singing this song over and over in my head, the day religion died. I'm singing bye-bye to my rules and my laws. Drove my Holy Spirits. I've got nothing else. That was a good cover. I worked hard on that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I didn't work hard on that. Here's the thing. Here's the big question. Is the original always more valuable than the replica duplicate cover? And I was thinking of cars, right? Think of if you're a car person. I'm not a huge car person. But when you look at cars, think of like a 1957 Shelby GT Cobra, right? Uh, that these things are worth, I mean, in the, in the original state, a million dollars plus. But why? It's, it's, you know, this really old technology. It's not even that fast anymore. But you could take that same shell of a car, put a new engine, maybe an AC and a radio. Uh, you can make it comfortable, more efficient, all these different things, but it would sell for a fraction of the price as the original. There's something about originals that for everyone in this room, it just makes you feel nostalgic. This could be art. Uh, if you have a Bob Ross original, it's probably worth a lot of money compared to someone who is maybe even 
you know, this might be heresy, a better artist, right? And they made a copy of a Bob Ross, right? It's not worth as much as the original, right? You gotta have the fro, you gotta. Everyone loves Bob Ross, happy little trees, happy little trees. Uh, I found this yesterday as a website that was dedicated to this whole idea, original art versus replica. Uh, this, this woman, Susan, says this, the reason why so many art lovers still buy original modern paintings is due to their belief that the original art holds more value than replicas. It is this, is this belief really true? Let's find out. This, this whole website dedicated to this. Basically, if you take a look at any original artwork that is done by an artist, you will find out that it has a higher intrinsic value than a reproduced work, uh, reproduced work of art. So even if an artist actually, their own person replicates it, right? They, they painted this thing and then they try to make corrections to it or they do it in a different medium. The original one still has more value. Uh, people usually develop close bond with original pieces of artwork than they do with reproduced artwork in different mediums. An original piece of artwork is real and is captivating to feel and to look at. Of course, you will easily understand what I'm talking about if you are an avid lover of art. I'm not an avid lover of art. Uh, I just kind of enjoy it, but there's something about the originality of it. So, because I, I was trying to figure out, is there actually anything, and there was this whole Reddit stream uh, of like, is there anything, and like people were trying to come up with ideas and other people would debunk it. The only thing, and I still think this is true, the only thing in the world that where the copy is way more valuable than the original is Dolly the clone lamb. <laughs> the, the clone lamb is actually more valuable than the original, right? Just, you guys remember Dolly? It was like 1999 or 97 or something like that where they cloned a mammal, right? It was this big, this big deal. So here's the professor, uh, Sir Ian, I can't read it, it's William something, chestnut, I can't read that, uh, from, from Edinburgh. Um, now, what's the point? My point is, other than Dolly, <laughs> replicas just simply aren't as valuable as the original. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to do today. The author of Hebrews is going to say, the original, let's go, let's go back. But, but hang on, we got, a time, we got some timeline issues. But I, I love how the author starts this passage. The author of Hebrews starts it with this. Now, the point in what we're trying to say is this. Okay, this is chapter 8. So for seven whole chapters, you've just been... What have you been doing? Rambling? Like, what's the, why, I mean, what's been going on? This is the whole point, right? He, the author kind of cracks, the, does the crack the knuckles thing, gets ready and says, okay, now here is the point. Here's what we're trying to say. And going back, we've been here in these previous weeks, uh, looking at this, of Jesus is greater. This is what he's, because again, if he just starts off, if the author of Hebrews starts off within chapter eight and says, here's the point, we would miss it. We would miss all of this that we've previously covered. And as a Gentile uh, who doesn't necessarily know the Hebrew Bible the way that a, a Jew would, I would miss the point. I would say, this is all crazy. What are you talking, what are you talking about? Jesus is, is a high priest. I don't even get it. What's, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. And if I'm Jewish, I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. Pump the brakes here, author of Hebrews. Uh, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything about the prophets. You don't know anything about the angels. You don't know anything about Moses. You know nothing about the Levitical priesthood and the law that God gave us. All right, so the author of Hebrews is building, they're making these building blocks and making their cases, making their case to say, now here's the point. So what have we covered, right? Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets, greater than the angels, fully God, fully human. Uh, but the, the situations that we have are, are, are better uh, than what previous generations were offered. We've, we've mentioned this over and over that Jesus is greater than rest, 
because he is rest for our souls. Uh, he's um, better. He's greater than earthly high priests. Uh, he's better than our insecurities and doubts when it comes to our, even our own salvation. He is an anchor for our soul. And as we looked at last week, which was pretty theologically heavy, was Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. And we'll talk a little bit more about Melchizedek, not because his name comes up, but just because we keep walking through this idea that Jesus is greater. And something is going to change. This is the point. Well, what's the point? It's with all that stuff in mind. So we got to keep that in mind. Melchizedek, uh, simply this idea that there is this eternal priesthood that doesn't that has nothing to do with our bloodlines, but we'll I'll talk about that, just kind of recap that in a second. So what have we been building up to? We've been building up to this, this whole time, this whole series, 12 weeks or 11 weeks previously to this point. Now, the point, and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. And again, if we just start there, we, we'd have to go back. What is a high priest? And why is Jesus? How can Jesus be a high priest? That's all the author is doing. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, a minister in the holy places. Well, what are these holy places? And all, right, we've talked about all that. In the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to talk about that a little bit more in this. But what is, what's happening here? This word tent is a fascinating word. Uh, we think of a camping tent. I love camping, although it's been a long time since I've been camping. But I do really enjoy uh, camping. Well, you set up a tent, and it's just a tent. That's what we think of uh, when we think of a tent. That's not what it is. Uh, in the true tent, uh, the Hebrew word for that is going to be tabernacle. Tabernacle simply means the place where God dwells. Okay, so a minister in the holy places in the true place where God dwells that the Lord set up, not man. So just kind of, he's kind of, kind of show his cards or her cards here of saying, hey, uh, there's going to be another tent that is made by man, another physical uh, a tabernacle. But something's better about the one that the Lord does. Verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, that's Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And that's what we looked at last week. How is it uh, that Jesus is here on earth, but he can be our priest, but he's, he couldn't be a priest if he was just a regular earthly priest because that was the whole thing of Levi. And so I should have done this, made it, make, make it a little easier last week. We have these two different types of priesthood. We have an earthly priesthood and we have a heavenly priesthood. The earthly priest that we see is temporal. It, it's going to fade. It doesn't last. It's this Levitical actual bloodline compared to an eternal one in the order of Melchizedek that has nothing to do with bloodlines. It has everything to do with who Jesus is of himself as the son of God. It's got nothing to do with who his great, 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 great grandfather was because Jesus doesn't have that. He is God. The earthly priests, they had these daily tasks. The heavenly priesthood, we see that it's a finished work, that Jesus sits down. Uh, the earthly priesthood just says day after day. They go and they do all these different things. The earthly priesthood, again, they meet in a physical place, a space, a church or a tabernacle or a temple. They go to this space, but the heavenly priest is in the presence of God himself. But they all, both have to offer something. That's what the previous passages, they both have to offer something. What is it that they're offering? Well, the earthly priesthood has to sacrifice animals. 
And as the author already made, true, and, and, and argued his point, their point was that they had to shed blood for their own sins. Where Jesus doesn't have to shed blood for his sins, but he sheds blood, his own blood for all the sins. That's what Jesus is offering. There's a difference. So then what is the point? And as mentioned in just kind of a silly introduction, the original is always better than the duplicate. The original is always better than the duplicate. As the author here says in verse five, they, that is the earthly priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And so I think we'd be amiss if we didn't go back and look at how did we get here? How did we end up with a duplicate? Or as the author of Hebrews would say, how did we end up with this shadow of these heavenly things that Moses was instructed to build? I've mentioned this before. This is a, a little video on YouTube. You can look it up from, uh, oh, brother, help me out, the Bible Project. Is that right? The Bible Project. Uh, and they do some really good things. I'm not, not, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect, but uh, they do some really good things. This one I really appreciate, just heaven, on, heaven and earth. And they have this idea that, and that's not their idea, this is a scriptural idea, uh, comes from the Bible, that in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created heavens and the earth. And so you have this heavens, you have this space that God dwells, it is his sphere, and then he also creates a physical, earthly sphere where humanity dwells. But he makes it, God makes it, and he says, it is good. This is good. Where I dwell obviously is good, but I'm going to create this new space for my image bearers to dwell in, and it is good. Matter of fact, it's so good that I'm allowed to go there. I'm allowed to interact. I'm allowed to tabernacle there. I'm allowed to dwell with them. And we see before Genesis 3, we see before the fall, that God actually goes and in some weird anthropomorphic thing somehow, God walks with his image bearers and he talks with them. He dwells with them. But we know that doesn't uh, last forever. That in chapter three, these spheres are violently ripped apart. Now you might say, I don't believe that. I don't believe in this whole idea God created the heavens and the earth. I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't think that God actually walked with his people but I do know that if you looked outside, you would know something's wrong with this world. And not just outside, look inside. I don't, I don't mean like, we're good in here. We're all good. Like, you know, like, we're good. I don't mean that. I just mean, take a look at our world. Take a look at yourself and say, something's broken here. Something's not, something's not right. And what happens in Genesis chapter three is God expels humanity from his space. And he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden and says, you are no longer allowed to enter in here. And he guards it with angels and says, you are not allowed back in this space. These angels are going to protect now my space, even my sphere that I dwell in on this physical place away from you. I cannot be in the presence of sin. And that remains true until we get to Moses until we get to Exodus. And so we see God showing up with Abraham, makes a covenant with Abraham. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, he stakes his own deity that this promise, Abraham, you're going to have sons and daughters and you're going to bless the earth with them. You're going to inherit this land. And if that doesn't come true, I will cease to be God. 
But it's not until Moses shows up in Exodus chapter 26. And this is where the author of Hebrews is talking about. The author of Hebrews says he's up on the mountain. He's up on Mount Sinai and God's given him the 10 commandments, given him all the laws. And what does God do? He says, let me give you strict instructions on how you're going to make this space and how you're going to make a tabernacle. You're going to make a space in which I can dwell in with my people. And what happens? These spheres begin to overlap. And so God takes his heavenly sphere and says, I want it to be gold. I want it to be beautiful. I want the artwork to be unworldly. I want to have these cherubim, these, these incredible angels with these wings, and they're just massive. I want them uh, laced into this curtain that's going to separate the Holy of Holies from the, from the holy place and all these different things. And, and on this altar, on this Ark of the Covenant, again, we have these cherubim guarding this as if it's just an image of the garden, of these angels guarding, do not come close to me. I'm separate. I'm other. I'm holy. And Moses is commanded to create this dwelling place where God can tabernacle, where he can dwell with his people again, but look at all the restrictions. And he says, and he gives them incredibly detailed. We went through this when we went through Exodus. It was, I mean, I read the whole passage. It's a long passage. And he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let, God says, I'm gonna show you how to build this tabernacle as best as humanly possible. But you know what? I'm gonna even give you some help, even more than instruction. I'm gonna have my spirit... Uh, help you out a little bit. I'm going to empower your artists and your carvers and, and your woodworkers and your goldsmiths to help them with this thing that is heavenly to invade your earthly space. And in this tiny little tabernacle, we have a tiny little overlap of this physical realm and this earthly realm. And that's exactly what we see happening. And so as we go back to this passage in Hebrews, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect this tent, this tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So what does Moses see? Moses is shown God's space, the original space. And so he duplicates it as best as humanly possible. So that's the duplicate. That's the copy. That's the shadow. Well, then let's look at the original. How do we end up with the original? And how is it that Christ, born thousands of years later, is the original? Author of Hebrews says this, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as a covenant he mediates is better. Again, how can something that comes after a duplicate can be better than the original? The author of Hebrews, just like last week and looking at Melchizedek, says because this Old Testament covenant, this tabernacle wasn't the original. It's a copy. It's a copy of Jesus and his heavenly space. Since it is enacted, this covenant is enacted on better promises. How can you get better than Moses? That's what the author of Hebrews has been arguing for seven chapters. Because it was never about Moses. You go back to Genesis chapter 14, way before the law of Moses comes around and says, this is all about Jesus. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second one. How is this possible? Because Jesus isn't just the, orig the original, it's better. He's far greater 
more, far, is much more excellent than the old because Jesus came to earth, took on flesh. It's what we call the incarnation. It's what we celebrate every Christmas season to celebrate Jesus taking on flesh, becoming human, fully God, fully human. Not just to dwell in some tabernacle or some tent or some temple and occasionally have some really special person enter into his space, but he takes on flesh. He becomes this image bearer, the perfect image bearer, the perfect representation of true humanity. And he dwells with his people. He invades humanity's sphere. And so when Jesus says, my kingdom has come, right? This is my kingdom. He's not saying this physical space. There's nothing magical about this building as if this building will always defeat sin. And anytime somebody walks in and they're fighting sin, oh man, you walk in here, this is Jesus's space. Now I hope it is. And yet at the same time, Jesus's kingdom is not made of brick and mortar. It's just simply not. It is made of what he's doing inside of us and he invades our sinful, broken spheres and what the Apostle Paul says, that our bodies are now, oh, here it is again, the tabernacle. That he dwells with me. His spirit lives in me. And we know this is true based on promises in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Again, this is just Christmas. Normally we don't talk about these verses unless we're talking about Christmas. But Isaiah 7, 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Where if we skip forward to Matthew chapter 1, Joseph right, just finds out, and this is Jesus' father, not biological father, adopted father, finds out that Mary is pregnant, right? Mary comes to Joseph and says, hey, I'm pregnant, but it's not what you think. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, okay, I'm out. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, that is our Greek word for the Hebrew word, Yeshua. And he will save his people from their sins. All this took place fulfilled. The Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Tabernacle. Tent. He's going to dwell with us. Just like they did all the way back in the beginning. He's going to dwell with us. So, how does religion die? Right? That's how we got here. That's the, the duplicate in the original. But how does Jesus kill religion? Well, we also have to have a working definition of religion. And I know we can split hairs in this all day long. What is religion? But my basic, and I think the basic understanding of what religion is, is anything that I do to, to move myself closer to God. Um, let me just read what I have here. Anything that I can do to move myself into a better standing with God. Right? I, I'm over here. God's over here. He says, I want you to do X, Y, Z. I do X, Y, Z. I get closer to God. That's religion. This, this might be cheesy, but uh, uh, we, we were taught this growing up. There's only uh, two letters uh, that differentiate Christianity from all the other religions in the world. 
And that is Christianity, or all the other religions in the world, spell D-O, do. And Christianity, Jesus, spells D-O-N-E, done. I remember I made a Freudian slip one time where I was telling that, and I said, it's do, D-O, Jesus says, don't, D-O-N-T. I was like, wait a second, that's not right. That's religion, okay, that's religion. Jesus killed that. It's not about following rules and regulations in order to put myself in a better position with Christ. He kills that. The old covenant is literally do this and live. Do this and you will move into a better position. But again, as we looked at last week, the law was never going to save anyone. If it could, then we would have just kept that. Then why do we as Christians in so many ways still live under that law? That I can in some way impress God? That we can in some way impress each other into being like a spiritual person or like a super Christian? Again, as the author of Hebrews says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. Uh, Sorry, is much more better than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, good enough, there would have been no occasion for a second. If they or anyone could have saved themselves by obeying the law, there would be no need for the second covenant, this new covenant that we find in Christ. So just briefly, I just want to look at this day religion died. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but again, looking at this tabernacle, this temple that Jesus is far, or excuse me, God the Father is far off. He's in this special place that you have to be incredibly religious. You have to actually be of a certain bloodline. You have to be of a certain uh, uh, gender to even one day of the year enter into a space for one time, just for a moment to enter into this special place. Because God is holy and he has this separate sphere that is perfect and we have this wicked human sphere that we dwell in, this physical sphere, but he tries to overlap it and Jesus now comes in and says, no, 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 we don't need to do that anymore. And he comes in on the cross and after he dies, a couple weeks ago, this veil is ripped in half and now all this space invades. We are now brought near to God through what Christ has to offer. And he offers himself, he offers his blood. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, this is verse 17 through 19. He says this, This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of when they were called already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not uh, seek circumcision. For neither of circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. His point here isn't necessarily circumcision. What was circumcision? It was a, a physical thing that was done to men to show I'm now in the community. I am in this covenant community of God and I'm marked by it physically, right? I'm over here. God's over here. God says, do this thing to be in my camp. And they go, okay, I will do this thing. Now I'm in. Now Paul here is saying under Christ, Circumcision, uncircumcision. Following this law, not following the law. Doesn't matter. And we can fill in the blank anything in here that makes us think, if I do that, God will view me differently. God will love me more. I will be something special. If I have daily devotions, listen, have your daily devotion. Get in the word of God. But if you get in the word of God thinking God will love you more, 
That's religion. Go to church, right? You're here. I'm preaching to the choir. I understand that. But if I think by going to church, it's going to, hey, man, I'm going to work some things out with the big guy upstairs to get things better. No, that's religion. And so we can look at this and say, for neither tithing counts for anything or not tithing counts for anything, but keeping the commandments of God. And what are these commandments of God? These are ways that we ought to live as Christians, right? That we flee sexual immorality. But if I think in fleeing sexuality is going to make God love me more, we've missed it. We keep the commandments of God. We love one another. Is there something external that we did, some external thing that someone did or we do to show that we're in a better standing than others? So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is our religion? What is, what is our religion? Uh, notice I didn't say false religion uh, because by the definition I'm using, all religions are false, even if you call yourself a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian and you think that you can do something to merit God's grace, because you're a good person, it's false religion. Jesus killed religion the moment he was killed. He killed religion when he said, it is finished because of what I've done. You can't do anything. Jesus killed religion when he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the author of Hebrews is then going to look at this new covenant, this new covenant that's promised in Hebrews chapter 8, looking at verse 8. It says, For he that is God, the Father, finds fault with them, Israel, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now here, he's quoting Jeremiah 31. There's a prophecy of this new covenant that's going to enter. But what's wrong with the old one, right? He, he finds fault with it. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Again, this is not the Abrahamic covenant where God says, hey, I'm going to do this for you. This is the Mosaic covenant that says, do this and you'll live. God says they didn't continue in my covenant. They didn't obey it, so now they're out. He uses language of divorce. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Moving on, then he says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house. There's a shift here. There's going to be an introduction to a new covenant that's going to, that's going to happen. Again, this is a prophecy and the author of Hebrews is saying, here's how this came true. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. Now, there's a whole other conversation of what is Israel and what we know, even based on Melchizedek, Israel doesn't mean ethnic Israel. It means everyone who puts their faith in the promises of God. All nations. I will, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. Here we go. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. I'm going to tabernacle among them. I'm going to dwell with them. And they shall not teach each other, uh, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That God is going to say, Here I am, freely, through the gospel, 
for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That is not the old covenant. To be merciful to me as a sinner, you're not going re- to remember it anymore. Something, something's going to change here. So then religion becomes obsolete. How does this happen? Next verse, the last verse of what we're going to be looking at in chapter 8. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And this, and what is becoming obsolete, is growing old and ready to vanish away. There's something happening here that's kind of this in-between world. Are we supposed to keep in this old covenant? Are we supposed to fully commit to the new? Well, Jesus tells us what happens if we don't commit to the new and we try to force some of the new into the old. In other words, I'm going to believe in Jesus, but man, you better do X, Y, Z if you want to be part of this club. He says this in Mark chapter 2, verse 22. He uses a parable. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. There's a whole thing here. I did research on this years ago. There's this whole thing that if you have a, a wine skin and it's got wine, the wine ages in that, it starts to kind of get brittle and fragile. Uh, but, and then you can, but it will, it will never burst while it's just got the original contents in it. But you can't reuse it. If you reuse it, it, it just breaks. It gets too brittle to put new wine and fermentation and bloating and all this stuff. It doesn't work. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine, what happens is poured out, it's dumped out, it's destroyed. And so are the skins. (laughs) So are the skins here. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. What's this parable? It seems a little cryptic. Jesus is saying, there's a new wineskin that is grace and mercy. There's an old wineskin, law. I am grace. The wine here is my blood. The wine that we partake of, I was going to point, like I'm still a creature of heaven, I was going to point to a communion table here, right? We don't have them. But this juice that represents the blood of Christ is this wine that represents the blood of Christ. And if we take that blood of Christ, of grace and mercy and freedom, and we jam it into an old way of thinking, I can improve my position, we pour out his blood for nothing. We try to force the grace of God into the new covenant, into the old law of religion. We spill the blood of Christ and the new wine for absolutely no reason. It's worthless if we don't fully put our trust in the blood of Christ. And if I claim Christ as Lord, I cannot live under the law of thinking that I need to be better or that God will love me more, or I think more dangerous in the church, I am better. I'm better than other people. I'm a better Christian than you. I tithe more. I give 10% of everything I have. I fast twice a week. Oh, wait, that sounds a lot like a Pharisee. It sounds a lot like somebody trying to merit a good position with God. God loves me more than you or somebody else. We try to be more spiritual than what we are. We try to come across as holier than thou. That's called hypocrisy. And we spent some time this summer looking at that, of taking the log out of my own eye of hypocrisy before I started pulling specks out of your eyes or other people's eyes. This is interesting because I think this is something we do all the time. Maybe even in little ways that we just try to impress people by our, maybe our theological knowledge, 
spiritual prowess. This is how often I go to church. We do this. It's interesting, but I, uh, it's always fun to see the reaction of people when, I, when they find out what I do for a living. Uh, Angel and I, just a couple weeks ago, were buying a car and, and a salesman. I mean, you talk like typical car salesman. This was the guy, right? Just schmoozing you, sweet talking you, you know, trying to get to know you and your family, uh, all these different things. And he finally says, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He immediately, oh, praise God. And he fist bumps me. And he goes, like I always say, God is good. That's, that's a good saying, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> why? Why are you telling me that now? Just because I said I'm a pastor? That's supposed to be better? Now, you know, now, now I'm going to buy my car from you, man. I didn't, actually. Not because of that, but. And we do that all the time. It's amazing. I'll be, I'll be hanging out with some people, neighbors or whatever, and some other person will, will find out I'm a pastor. And what do they do? Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry I told that joke earlier. It's like, it's like what happened here, right? You don't have to impress me. That's religion. But we, we do that to each other all the time. I think we do this. And this might be a Minnesotan thing or a Midwestern thing. I'm you know, from Illinois, although I've lived in Minnesota now a long time, uh, coming up on nine years. And uh, we do this thing, it's called reciprocity. Uh, so for example, if I, if I invite Nelson over to my house and we have a good time, we hang out, I share a good meal and some drinks with them. And this is what we do as Midwesterners. I'm not saying Nelson would do this. He's a little introverted, so he probably wouldn't do this. But they, when, as they're leaving, say, I'll have to have you over sometime. And how often do we do, hey, I'll, I'll have to have you over sometime. As we have to like make it equal. That's religion. <laughs> we do this to each other all the time. We try to live under this man-made law or some law of being spiritual. I think we need to repent of that. So why not live under the law again, just to kind of, this is the whole point of the whole matter. Jesus poured out his blood so we could be free. Now, be holy, fight sin. That's a whole nother sermon. That'll, that'll be coming. But do we fight sin? Do we pursue holiness on the basis of a better standing with God? No, can't do it. It's finished. But I don't want to end it there. I want to end with just the fact of looking at this theme of God dwelling with his people in Genesis chapter three, dwells with people and expels humanity out of that space. And then is the whole entire Bible is not how human beings can reach God. It's how God reaches his people. And he comes and he dwells in these temples, these tabernacles. And then Jesus takes on a, a physical tabernacle so he can walk among us. And then he dies for our sins and our bodies become the temple. But I'm, we're, we're there. Jesus already won the victory over sin and over death, but we're not there yet. This world is still broken. There's still sin. His kingdom has come, but his will is not being done here on earth as it is in heaven. But someday... And if you've been around Lower Town for a while, these verses should ring well in your ears when God tabernacles with his people permanently. In Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place with God, his tabernacle is with man. That these two spheres now are not separate there is somehow going to become one, this new city, this new Jerusalem, that it's going to be better than even it was in the garden, that we're going to have this completion 
of these two spheres. And again, he will dwell with them. He will tabernacle with them and they will be his people. And God himself will tabernacle with them as their God. So my favorite verse in the Bible, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. So in application, simple. Are you trying to earn favor with God? In any, any way, in any simple way, am I trying to earn the favor of God and am I trying to earn the favor of others by being spiritual in some way, shape, or form? In a moment, we're going to have communion. And I say this every week, but I, I, I don't want us, this to become dull in our ears of what communion means. And if you're a member of this church or no church or anything, you're watching online, I would love for you to partake of these elements if you're a follower of Christ. Because Jesus at the table, when we take these elements of the juice and of the bread, he says this is the new covenant. That new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31 when he instituted it 2,000 years ago said this is the new covenant. It, I mean, it's starting now and I'm doing it with my blood. Doing this with my body. Death of religion, even in taking of these elements. Right, That even there's nothing magical or spiritual. You are not a better person because you drink a little cup of juice and, and eat a little wafer today. Not, that has nothing to do with this but it allows me to bow my head and confess sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and it might restore my view of God and my relationship with God, but it does not change his view of me. That's the beauty of being a Baptist, I guess. Maybe it's just a lazy Christianity or a lazy pastoral role. I don't have to bless the elements. I don't do anything with it. I simply pray over them and we remember what Christ did. Right? How arrogant would it be for me to think that I'm the only one who can do something to do something to these elements to make you a better person? I believe in the priesthood of all believers that we all have equal access to the Father through the Son, Christ, our mediator, our high priest who is seated on his throne. I know it's only through his blood. I'm not special. I'm a sinner, broken, who has to bow before our high priest, And for some, maybe all of us, religion needs to die in our hearts and our minds. And again, because Jesus already killed it when he nailed it to the cross. And so as we partake of these elements, keep that in mind. What do we need to repent of? What do we need to maybe confess sin? What do we need to even ask forgiveness, maybe from our friends or brothers in the room? So as we sing a couple more songs, as we sing a song by the blood of God, by the blood of Christ, that we would remember what it is that he did for us as he nailed religion to the cross and killed it and said, you can do nothing to merit my favor. Simply believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for uh, this passage. It's a lot here. And God, I just pray that, um, that these scriptures would ring true. 
uh, that we would not try to merit anything that we can't. We did nothing to earn our salvation. And as we looked at a couple weeks ago, we can't do anything to unearn our salvation. And so we get to live as free citizens in your kingdom, but at the same time living in a way and loving one another and loving the world in a way that points them to you. To be different, to not be religious for religion's sake, to not just follow rules because we think it's the right thing to do, but to love you and to point others to you. So God, would you be with us as we partake of these elements that represents this new wineskin and the new wine of your blood that it, that it wouldn't just be poured out and dumped onto the ground, but it would be poured over our souls so we can have an anchor safe and strong and secure in that holy of holies, behind that veil, behind that curtain, and that we have direct access to God because of what Christ did, not because of anything we've done. So God, I pray now as we sing that you would receive the honor, glory, do your name, and that you would be glorified, that you'd be pleased with us as we partake of these elements. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.